Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? Hey, today is a Tuesday, the 17th of August, 2021, and we're back with another episode of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general awesome awesomeness of some really cool plant people. I am Vikram Baligia, your host and humble guide through the leafy, sometimes invasive sciences. How's it going today? Y'all, y'all doing good? I hope you are. Uh, I don't know what the world is like in your part of the world, but we're about to start school and we're still in the middle. It, You know what? I, I'm not going to talk about it. I, I'm, it's It's gives me anxiety. But school starting uh, next week. I have 153 introductory horticulture students this semester. So they uh, they just they just don't even know what they're in for. So uh, if you if you've been listening for a while and, and you happen to know one of these poor impressionable young people, you should apologize in advance to them for me. Hey, we got a good one today. Uh, this is one that I've been trying to do for a little while. And uh, my guest is just the most wonderful person. And I've heard her on uh, the Just the Zoo of Us podcast. We've been um, Twitter friends for quite a while. But uh, Emily Bell uh, works with the Extension Service in Florida. And she'll tell you more about that here in a minute. But she specializes in studies in invasive species, which I think is just such a super fascinating topic. And she is a self-identified fellow plant nerd. She is an avid outdoor enthusiast. She's worked in uh, uh, Florida where she lives and Hawaii and all kinds of other places and just has some really cool experience and some really interesting, fascinating, and important thoughts on ecology. And I know you're going to love this episode. So uh, I don't want to belabor this too much more, um, but go do the things that I always tell you to do. Follow Plantopology on all the social media places, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, look for Plantopology, look for the bristlecone pine, and that's me. Uh, Also, you can find me and whatever was left of my self-respect over on TikTok at The Plant Prof. But uh, without any more ado, because I really want to get into this one, here is episode 55 of the Planthropology Podcast, Invasive Species, Biological Control, and Russian Shillbots with uh, my dear new friend, Emily Bell. Right. Well, we are back with another episode of Planthropology, and and I'm really excited about this one. This is one that we've been trying to coordinate for a while, and I kind of dropped off the face of the earth for a while towards the end of the semester. And so, like, this one, along with two or three of the recordings around it, like, I'm pretty sure I tried to start scheduling, like, in March or something. And then finally, I'm getting to where I can do it. Um, but I have with me Emily Bell who is the Florida Invasive Species uh, Partnership Coordinator um, associated with the University of Florida Extension. And we're going to talk invasives and plants and all kinds of stuff. And I'm so excited. How are you today, Emily? Yeah, I'm good. I'm so excited also. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So what's the, I, I don't know why I've started like talking about the weather at the beginning of episodes. And I think it's because there is a, there's another podcast I listen to um, called This Week in Virology, which if you're out there listening and you want to know about it, it's such it's such a good show. Uh, but they always start with like a weather report. And somehow that got in my mind. So what's the weather like in Florida? 
Um, so I'm in Northeast Florida. I think when most people think of Florida, you know, South Florida is probably the most iconic. Um, but I actually live up kind of right near Georgia on the East Coast. And uh, it's hot and humid. And we are uh, fully into our rainy season. So we get some nice afternoon thunderstorms just about every day. Uh, we've already had one tropical storm kind of move across the state. So that gave us a good bit of rain as well. Um, so hot, humid and rainy typical Florida summer. <laughs> you know, I was in, I was in Tampa, uh, oh gosh, four or five years ago for a conference in like October. And, yeah. and by October here where I live in West Texas, it's cool. You know, we're back in the seventies during the day. There's no, we don't have humidity. It's, it doesn't exist here. <laughs> so I packed like normal, like, oh, I need a suit. I need all these things. And I walk outside on the first day of this conference. I'm like, I'm going to die in the suit. Like yeah. it's so hot. Well, in Tampa, even, you know, it's kind of south central, you're starting to get uh, into central Florida. But here in northeast Florida, we get winter, but October is variable. It really depends. We have really cold Octobers and we have Octobers that are still like summer. So okay. uh, but we are up here, November, December, January, February. It's chilly. It's cold. Um, more so than central and south Florida. But yeah, it's uh it's very variable. Even in winter now, we used to get pretty cold winters up here, but even now what we've been having more of lately is just like, uh, we'll get a little cold snap that'll last a few days and then it'll be back in the eighties for a few days and then it'll drop into the fifties again. And it kind of just <laughs> does that until it heats up again for good. <laughs> and, and for those of y'all listening, like I have an ulterior motive with talking about the weather and about different locations and different climates. We're going to talk about invasive plants and some other things and Climate plays a huge uh, role in in where plants are invasive and all that. We'll get back to that a little bit later. Um, but why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more? Tell us about you know wh where you grew up, what you studied, how you how you got to where you are. Sure. Um, so I've been thinking about this because like I've been listening to the podcast and I know you know folks talk about that and uh, and where to start. So I'm a Florida girl. I was raised here in Northeast Florida on uh, Amelia Island, just a little itty bitty uh, town. Uh, just north of Jacksonville. So people kind of know Jacksonville. It's big and sprawly. Um, so I'm just to the north of that in a small town. And uh, um, both of my parents are foresters. And so uh, both went to the University of Florida, uh, graduated with forestry. And um, so I have to kind of give both of them a shout out for just even kind of what I've done with my career in that, you know, my mom was at the time in the mid seventies, I think one of the only two women in the forestry school. Wow. So she was like, you know, badass forester, yeah. uh, worked for a local, uh, forest industries, uh, here in, uh, in the Southeast U S and basically went as far as a woman was going to go and it broke off and did her own consulting from there. And then my dad, um, was in forestry and uh, timberlands and, and then kind of transitioned into the sales component of the company that he worked for. Okay. And he was somebody who was really passionate about the environment as well. And oftentimes, especially, I think it's gotten better, but especially when I was growing up, there was kind of this timber industry, bad environmentalist, good, and they right. didn't really, you know, meet. Right. And so he was really passionate about bridging those gaps. So he would, you know, join the local environmental organizations. Um, once he got into the land sales part, he did a lot of work with the state legislature in getting, uh, and with researchers on where lands needed to be conserved and where the overlap with some of the timber holdings were and getting some of those lands into conservation. So he did a lot of work with that. Um, 
So yeah, just two really strong, uh, you know, advocates for being outdoors, for learning about plants, obviously, uh, you know, and so, um, and then also just our whole family grew up between here and also spent a lot of time on the Suwannee River in Florida, which is more kind of still North Florida, but kind of in the central part of the state, really beautiful, kind of unseen Florida, the part of Florida most people don't really know so much about, but should, because it's incredible. Um, and so I went to the University of Florida and was going to be a biology major. I was like, yeah, you know, I want to be really I wanted to be a marine biologist. That was like okay. the thing I was going to do. Right. I was really into whales and the ocean and um, and kind of got my butt kicked a little bit uh, with the math and some other things. And was like, oh, maybe this isn't for me. You know, <laughs> what am I going to do? And I want to be careful here when I talk about this, because like. If people want to go that route and they get into it and it's a little hard, but you're still super passionate about like, do it. Like I could have probably overcome some of that stuff, but you know, there was a lot going on transitioning into college. And it just, I basically took the, um, the course catalog from the University of Florida and just read it cover to cover. I'm like, okay, what can I do that will keep me in school, you know, keep me engaged and, and I can actually kind of succeed at and feel like decent about myself. So I landed on anthropology. And so my background is social science. So I uh, did a dual anthropology sociology degree um, as my undergrad and then finished that up. And again, was like, all right, now what am I going to do? You know, um, was interested in grad school, but had too many interests, like couldn't narrow it down into one thing. So um, I kind of came home and puttered around a little bit. I actually worked for my local animal control uh, organization. because I was really passionate about like, I'm really into dogs and, you know, wanted to help uh, in that realm. So I did that for a little while. And uh, also kind of just went back I, in high school, you know, I worked in restaurants. So I went back and did some of that just to, you know, have some income. And then I thought, you know, it would be neat. Uh, it'd be cool to be a park ranger. And so I just started applying for any park ranger job that came available in the state of Florida. And this is where kind of my career path got defined by a really lucky break, which is that I got an interview at a place called, and buckle up for this one, the Guanatalamato Matanzas National Estuarine Research Reserve. Wow. So what was cool about that is Florida has a state park system and it's really incredible. It's really vast. And, you know, park ranger is a pretty ubiquitous job at these at these state parks. And uh, it's a pretty well-defined role of what you do. And it's a cool job, but it can be tough. It's demanding and you're working in the elements. Um, but this National Student Research Reserve, so it's a NOAA state partnership. And there's 28, there might be 30 now in the nation. Um, Hawaii was in the process of getting one. I'm not sure where that landed a few years ago. But um, so anyways, any coastal areas with estuary, um, they have these national estuary research reserves and they, many of them combine different uh, parcels of land with different agency uh, management. And so this particular place used to have a state park component. And when it became a NUR, the state park turned over its management to the the NUR. Uh, so anyways, the way that this shaped my career is that the National Eastern Research Reserve not only had that land management component, component, so I came on as a park ranger, I got the job there as a park ranger, but they also had uh, education 
and social science components. So every National Estuarine Research Reserve has something called the Coastal Training Program, which is built to take the research. That, so there's three, uh, three primary components of the research reserve. It's the land management, it's the research. So they partner with universities and, and they have their own research section. And then they have the education component. And so the Coastal Training Program is intended to take the research that comes out of all the partners in the reserve itself and translate that information for decision makers. So those decision makers can be anyone from uh, homeowners to your elected officials to businesses. So really what it winds up being is, you know, you're doing a lot of workshops and program coordination and bringing people together uh, to collaborate and create partnerships. So (laughs) starting there as a ranger, getting really good experience for the first few years doing the on the ground field work. Um, You know, I had in school, I had taken some natural resources. I was really interested. A big part of my anthropology studies was how people relate to the environment um, because I did want to keep that component, you know, my passion about the environment in in there. And so um, I had a basic, you know, understanding of the systems, but just got such good experience working on the, on the ground and in the field, and then was able to transition because of my background into the coastal training program. And so, um, gosh, I guess I should rewind for just a minute. One thing I had been doing before I started at the NUR was um, actually my dad introduced me to, at the time in Northeast Florida, we had a nature conservancy office. Uh, unfortunately, we no longer have a, a, an office here in Northeast Florida, but Um, He introduced me to everyone in that office and I did an internship for them, which was developing a survey for the land managers in the region on uh, invasive plants that they were dealing with to try and prioritize control uh, strategies Um, and what plants were maybe incipient populations versus what is widespread. Um, And so I had done that as well. So I kind of had gotten my feet wet with really focusing on invasive species issues, which is what kind of drew me into that world. And then, um, so when I got into the coastal training program and my big, uh, you know, mission was to help translate science and um, actually have that science be used to implement change, um, I knew a lot about invasive species. So I brought a big invasive species component into that program. Um, Did that for a number of years and then got a really incredible opportunity to go out to Hawaii and do some strategic planning for the Hawaii Invasive Species Council. So that was really cool, um, really incredible just to learn. Hawaii and Florida actually have a lot in common when it comes to invasive species, but also there's obviously this whole other host of issues related to the Pacific Islands and and what they deal with. Um, So just really amazing opportunity, got so much out of that. Um, And then, but ultimately, again, I'm a Florida girl. I really uh, just was homesick and uh, missed it and came home and did some some stuff for a little while. I took a little bit of a break from the uh, just invasive species, a big issue. And this can be really exhausting when it's all you do day in and day out. And so I took a little break from that, um, did some other stuff. And then this opportunity to work with the Florida Invasive Species Partnership, which is what I currently do, came up and uh, took that because it really tied in basically everything I had done to this point. Um, gave me an opportunity. I'd done a lot of regional work in Northeast Florida, gave me uh, an opportunity to really bring that uh, that work statewide. Um, so gosh, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> Sorry, that was a lot. No, no. Can you visit any of that? But that's basically my, my path. Never went back to school. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I work with a lot of master's and, and PhD folks. Um, 
but I kind of just, I just worked up through experience and, and watching other people do, do things and learning and soaking it up and being like, I can do that as when it comes to like meeting facilitation and coordination and bringing groups together and stuff like that. I, well, and I think that's, you know, that's really a fascinating story. I really, I like, I'm thinking through all of that because I do have questions <laughs> for sure. Uh, but no, that, you know, that's an important message that like, gosh, you know, I, I, I get, I, I'm in the academia world. So I get stuck sometimes in the mindset that, oh, go back, get another degree, do another thing, study more, spend more money, all that kind of stuff. Gosh, you don't have to. Like, yeah, you, you can do what you love. Like you, I mean, yeah, having a bachelor's degree and especially in anthropology, I think is, I mean, clearly I think it's fascinating, but, uh, but like, I think we put ourselves in like shoe boxes a lot. Like this is what I studied. This is what I do. This is what I have to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not, life's not really that way. I mean, really, but so my, my wife has a degree in uh, uh, wildlife science and wildlife and fishery. She studied more like collections and management and stuff like that. Now she is the education coordinator at a science museum here in our, ta- yeah, in our that's uh, so city. Cool. And, you know, someone asked her one time, like, are you using your degree? And she says, sort of, you know, like uh, we deal with animals, we deal with collections, but we we both grew up here. We've known each other for our whole lives. And even as kids, I remember her talking about like we would go to this museum that she works at the science spectrum. And she would always talk about how, Oh, I would love to work here one day, you know, even as kids. And like, you can find, and you said, you know, you wanted to be a biologist and uh, you're working in biology, Mm -hmm. you know, and you kind of took the, the, the route, the road around all the math. And I'm kind of jealous of that. I kind (laughs) of love that actually. Um, so what's really incredible about what I do, um, and what I've done in my career is that, um, and and now, so the other part of what I do now is I help coordinate invasive statewide invasive species efforts within the university of Florida's extension, uh, the Institute of food and agricultural sciences. That's our extension branch. And so, um, it's the most, uh, it's the closest to academia I've ever been, for sure, because most of my work has been more with uh, agencies and, and organizations um, and nonprofits and stuff. But um, the coolest thing about what I do now is that I have had the opportunity because I'm somebody who you bring in when uh, you need a meeting facilitated amongst different partners to get to a specific outcome or to get specific information together or Somebody who, with my experience, has been, you know, keeping partnerships together. So coordinating the meetings that we have and making sure that they people get something out of them. So they want to stay engaged in whatever it is we're trying to do. Um, And so with that skill set, I have gotten to be in the room with some of the coolest people and the coolest researchers and the coolest. And, and so I think if there's a message in, in the type of work that I do and, and you can do what I do and go through and get a PhD and all of that. And I have total respect for people who do that, but um, that skill set is so needed amongst people who are the researchers and who are so deeply ingrained in whatever their one subject may be, because they need people to come in and say, okay, well, how can we apply this? Mm-hmm. Um, or how can we bring you into this other group that's doing similar work and work together to maybe be more effective or to have more resources? Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, the people that I've gotten to work with through this, um, 
and then I get to learn about all these different things, right, that these yeah. researchers are doing. So that's by far the coolest part of my career is that I've had the opportunity to be sometimes a fly on the wall, uh, sometimes an active, you know, facilitator or participant now because I do have quite a bit of experience with some of the the biological stuff. But um, but yeah, it's been incredible in that way. That's so cool. And and you know, I spent some time with Extension as well, doing that kind of stuff. And so like there there is a special place in my heart for doing like a general I'm trying to think for the best way to say it, like general approachable science, mm-hmm. you know, and as I got back into my PhD, it's like, spend all your time focusing on this one thing, right? Like you pour, and you, and you said this, like you pour everything into one thing. And, and sometimes we kind of, you know, lose the forest for the trees a little bit. And, and I think that um, that is such, like you say, such a necessary um, role in any mm-hmm science communication system. I talk about this a lot, but you kind of stand in the gap in that feedback loop, mm-hmm. right? People, people go and they, I mean, whether they know it or not, if you're paying your taxes, you're paying for science. Like whether you know it or not, or whether you like it or not, like you're paying for science. And, and sometimes, you know, I've I said, say this a lot on the show. We don't give that product back to the people that paid for it, mm-hmm. but you do. And again, it's so important, you know, that those people who do get really focused on one issue or one thing like that research is so critical because we need to understand what's happening and how things are working. And, um, you know, so it's we need we need all those pieces. Right. We need those yeah. people who get super hyper focused into a silo and go, this is what I'm really interested in. But right. then you also need those people who can come and say, Hey, check this out, you know, work with these people. Let's do this together. Let's apply your research here. Um, so yeah, it's all, it's all a big uh, puzzle that needs to come together and and all the pieces are so important. Well, that's super cool. And I think, you know, being able to view it through your experience in in the field, but also through your studies in anthropology and social science, like there is, okay, I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'm going to make at least one person mad, and I don't care. Uh, I care a little. I do care a little. Uh, but like, you know, we've all met that person. And I think I said this maybe on a recent episode, too, that is like, the 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 smartest human that knows all the things about a thing, and then they try to communicate that thing. Ugh. Right. It doesn't like we've all had that professor and not and that's not to say that's not to call anyone out or anything. And I, I'm kind of joking a little bit, but I think being able to fee, to view sciences and the bigger picture of how we relate to those sciences through a social lens, through an anthropological lens is so fascinating. I love that so much. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. Yeah. And I think it's getting a lot better. You know, um, when I was coming up in Florida through like the Department of Environmental Protection here, who who is the state partner for the National Western Research Reserve Program, um, you couldn't like I actually got denied to go to a conference one time because they were like, this is too social sciencey. But what it was, was it was a NOAA social science conference. And so I feel like NOAA has been a real leader in some yeah. of that. Um, the National Park Service has really been a leader in a lot of that. Um but it's, it's starting to, and even, you know, there's so many good researchers and I was telling you earlier how like I'm so new to Twitter, but there are a lot of scientists who are getting a lot better. You know, I think it's, yeah. it's high calm and, and that kind of stuff and, and recognizing the need for it. So, um, yeah, I think we're all coming together a lot better than, than in the past and really um, just getting, getting more recognized. That's awesome. And that's really encouraging too. 
Um, so I want to kind of to switch gears a little bit and, and talk a little bit of subject matter. So you work with invasive species and, you know, invasive plants primarily. Uh, mm-hmm. You said you did have experience with animals and stuff like that. So, okay, I have lots of questions and lots of directions I want to go with this. So I'm going to try to focus um, because this is something that I find really fascinating. And um, can you tell us what is the difference between an invasive species and a native plant? Okay. So uh, let's see, how do I want to approach that? Um, Yes, I can. Um, I think what I want to do is just let's talk about what an invasive species is. So let's define it in the simplest of terms, right? So essentially there's three, uh, three, um, oh my gosh, what's the word I want? Tiers that a species needs to hit to be classified as invasive. So we're going to say one, that it's non-native to the area that it is in. And so here's where we get into that difference, right? And uh, you have to be specific about that because um, some things, even on the continent of continental U.S., there are things that are maybe invasive in Florida, but not in the Western states, right? The things that move that way. Um, So it has to be non-native and the definition we'll use for that, um, you know, we use that classic definition for the continental U.S. of pre-European contact. But of course, we know even prior to that, things were moved around. But that's, let's just use that as a benchmark. Um, And and there are some, there's some gray area, like with most of these things. So we'll acknowledge that there's some gray area there. But in most cases, that works. Um, So it has to be non-native. And the reason that's important is because we have native species that act as a nuisance sometimes in some situations. And we have to be able to talk about those a little differently. Um, And we can get into that, too. That's another tangent. So um, so there's that. So the second one is um, it is a established and uh, reproducing on its own without any assistance from people. Um, it's, you know, it's out in the environment doing, doing fine on its own. Um, kicking back to that first tier, I'll add that the mechanism pretty much has to be that humans brought it, introduced it. Um, and that's important too, for another reason we can talk about, which is natural species moving, uh, for, for other reasons and even climate change. So it gets, yes, it gets complicated. It's, it's, it's great quick, but we can talk about some basic things. So number one, non-native and introduced by people. Number two uh, is established and has self-sustaining breeding populations. Number three, it is causing harm to either or all of the above to uh, human health, to the environment, or to the economy. Hmm. So those are our three things that, that something has to hit. That, and then we say, okay, this species is invasive. And that harm is really the critical factor, right? Um, because we do have some things that are established uh, that are non-native to an area, but aren't necessarily causing any harm. So, okay, yeah. you know, we'll watch them. There's issues there too with uh, invasional lag and things like that. But generally, is that, <laughs> did I muddy that up enough? <laughs> no, I think that's a, I think that was a, a very thorough answer. Because we we use that term a lot and you see it a lot. You know, we're, we, we are friends on Twitter and on social media and you see that all the time. Like, oh, this thing's invasive. This, I'm, I'm not going to get into the animal I was going to say, but the, these things are invasive and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's important to understand that, that words mean things. You know, we can't, like, we throw terminology around and it's like, 
anytime a word gets have you ever said a word so many times that after a while it just starts to not make any sense for sure and and i think we get there with like words like invasive like okay is this weed that's in my front flower bed that I don't want here, this dandelion or whatever, is that invasive? Well, I mean, maybe, maybe not, probably not, Uh, but it could be, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that that is a very good, thorough explanation of what an invasive plant is. And so one of the first things when I came on board with the UFIFAS side of my work, the university side, one of the first things the group, the primary group that I work with did is we uh, published a paper in the Journal of Extension on invasive species terminology to use with stakeholders, uh, basically the general public. And so we identified um, seven terms that we that we defined and said, here's what we should say. Um, we also identified terms we want to kind of stop using uh, when we talk about invasives. So like one that has kind of mostly gone away but still pops up are things like alien, um, exotic, um, Uh, We want to be really clear in the terms that we use. Um, And so that was in the journal extension. It actually has been really popular because I think there is such a need to say, okay, when we're talking, you know, even in my definition, as I mentioned, things get gray real fast. And when we're talking to researchers and when we're talking, you know, in our our communities of practice, yeah, we need to flesh out all that gray area and we need to talk about it. But when we're communicating with stakeholders who just want to know, like, do I need to pull this up or, you know, just want to understand the basic issues that we're dealing with, we do want to have some really clear communication and be using the same words to, to talk about what we're talking about. Yeah, that's really that that yeah, that that's super important. And I, I wanted to give like a, a specific example. We have um I don't know if you have mesquite trees where you are. It's a it's No, but I've heard you talk about it. Yeah, okay. It's in it's an acacia. Now I can't remember you know what the scientific name is. It, it doesn't matter. Um Prosopis glandulosa, it doesn't matter. So yeah, they they are a lot of times people are in this area for some reason getting fights about the mesquite tree. Like I, it's mm-hmm. it's the weirdest thing. Like, oh, we're, this this wasn't a native and and the um the idea that that people throw around a lot is that it came up with the cattle drives. It's it's real common in South Texas um along the Mexican border and in northern Mexico. And so the idea is that oh when when cattle were driven up into our area, the acacia was or the I'm sorry, the mesquite was moved up here. And there are these scrubby little trees. Uh, they're the wood is beautiful if you can find a piece that's longer than like three inches long. Like they're they're these, these weird scrubby trees. And um, but but there's an archaeological site here in the Lubbock area where I live, uh, and they've dug up mammoth bones and all kinds of other stuff. But in that, they found charred remains and fossilized remains of these trees that they've carbon dated. 4,000 years, 5,000 years. So things move into and out of ranges all the time. And so, yeah, having a, a you know, a, as much as it is hard to draw like a line sometimes and say, this is what it means, y- you kind of have to for the sake of clarity. Mm-hmm, right. And some things are very clear. Like most of the biggest invaders we deal with in Florida, um, we know where they came from. We know when they came in. We can pretty clearly say, you know, this is a native. This was brought in for this reason at this time, and now it's a problem. But we have our own version of that argument here in Florida with an aquatic plant called water lettuce. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it's a similar thing where I actually don't, I haven't dug, I've kind of, ugh, I see it and I'm like, okay, y'all figure it out and then tell me. <laughs> but um, but it's a similar thing where it's, uh, you know, some people consider it introduced, but then there's fossil record evidence of a similar species, whether it's the same or not, I think is some of the argument, but it's a very similar argument to what you're describing. So yeah, we have those gray areas. Um, but mo- again, most of what we're dealing with is pretty clear. Um, but you get into so the term that we use in our publication for natural, what we would consider natural species movement is range change. And okay. so in Florida, we deal with that with things like coyotes and armadillos. So we didn't used to have those. We do now, but they kind of came on their own. Um, they And then uh, with plants, we're actually dealing with things like mangrove migration north with climate change. And so um, we're seeing some of us are we're seeing our salt marsh line, uh, which generally was around central Florida into kind of north Florida and on the West Coast as well. We're actually seeing both sides. We're seeing our salt marsh line decrease and as our mangrove line, our, our mangrove systems uh, increase. And so there's a lot of questions around that um, because salt marsh is really important habitat. Uh, mangrove is also really important habitat, but we're having, we're seeing this range change um, and how we talk about that in the future is, is going to be important, but we're still studying it. And we still need to know what the implications of that are going to be. That, yeah, that's really fascinating. Cause yeah, cause we don't know necessarily, right? We, when we're talking on evolutionary time or geological time with some of these like species movements, it's like, okay, well, <laughs> maybe it's going to be bad. Maybe it's, you know, we don't know, but right. there are examples and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about it. Um, I think there are a lot of cautionary tales when we talk about moving plants or moving animals mm-hmm. um, from one place to another. I, I use the example of the cane toad in Australia a lot of how, you know, they introduced these six males and six females and they ate everything mm-hmm. except for what they were supposed to. And now there's yeah. billions of them, you know, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um Go ahead. So there's two really big branches to that discussion. So the one kind of that you're, you know, that you're hinting towards with the cane toad example is uh, this misunderstanding of biological control. And so there are these species whose introductions were intended to uh, control something else that had gotten out of hand or control a pest or something like that. Um, And there are these examples of things that were done in a not necessarily very scientific way that are often used to discredit um, biological control that's done in a very scientific mm, way okay. and is an important tool against invasive species. Yeah. And so um, I would say when we talk about cautionary tales, like, yes, it's important to bring those up and say, like, that was a bad idea when that was done. But also just before we really understood how these things could impact the environment, especially in the early 1800s, I'm sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s, there was just this boom of bringing plants from all over the place um, to Florida. Also, so an example I can give from Hawaii too, is that um, when it was, you know, colonized, they basically deforested a lot of the mountains and realized that they created a huge environmental problem because they had mudslides and it was contaminating the water. And they're like, well, we got to reforest and we got to do it fast. So they brought in one of the world's fastest growing trees, Albizia. Uh, Oh, the scientific name is escaping me right now because there's some different different Albizias. But they brought in this, I want to say it's from Africa, Albizia. It gets giant, it's a huge tree. 
Um, and it's incredibly invasive, of course, now. I mean, it's the fastest growing tree in the world and it creates a lot of problems. It's uh, really problematic with hurricanes because the wood is somewhat weak. It blows over. Um, when I was there, a hurricane hit the Big Island, um, hit the Hilo side of Big Island. And it was a really big hurricane and it hit Hilo side. And then it essentially was diffused by the two big uh, mountain peaks. So Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa, uh, the storm dissipated, but Hilo has a ton of Albizia. And honestly, had that storm hit and the natural em environment been there, the natural uh, like Ohia forests that are supposed to be there, the economic damage probably would not have been as severe because a wow. lot of the economic damage was from these giant trees going down. And so, um, so there's an example where they brought something in to reforest and uh, it became a huge problem. But in Florida, you know, we just have so many plants that were brought in in that time period for just ornamental, like, hey, this is pretty. Let's bring this in and plant it. Uh, one of the best examples in my personal nemesis is called the Brazilian pepper tree, uh, Shinus terebinthifolia. Um, it now covers over 700,000 acres of natural area in Florida. It's wow. it's so bad. And we have some hybrid vigor going on. It's really problematic. Um, and again, it was one of those introduced because it was pretty and, and planted. And so um, a lot of that was before we knew better. And so now yeah. what we have to do is take the responsibility to say, okay, when we want to bring something new in, let's make sure it doesn't have the potential to become become invasive, right? Um, so I think that is a lot of the cautionary tales is just, you know, learning from our past mistakes. And the same is true with some of those quote unquote biological controls of the early days. And I, I say quote, because again, when we talk about biological control, we wanna be really clear that um, what we do now and what has been done for, you know, well over a, a few decades is very, very thorough research. Sure. Um, and we have some really big success stories with biological control uh, that are important to share. And um, so, yeah. No, and, and that is a, that is a good message to tell because, I, you know, I, I talk about ecology in my class that I teach and I, I always talk about things like kudzu and cane toads and all of that. But, I, you know, I, I probably don't spend enough time talking about, you know, we, we do a little bit with. Uh, some different biological control, you know, organisms and things, but I probably don't spend enough time talking about, okay, these are problems we have. And then we did lots of research and science, and then we found things that do work. And so <laughs> that, you know, that that's really a good message for me personally, that to work that in, because uh, we have to be careful in science communication in general and science education of, of trying to tell the whole story. Right. And, and I mm -hmm. think we fall into that trap of, you know, especially if you spend time on Twitter and some other places, like it gets a little doom and gloom, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and there's, I'm sure there, there is plenty, there are plenty of things to be concerned about. I'm not trying to downplay that, but we have figured out a lot of stuff too. We, we've done a lot of things that have made, uh, you know, plant systems and ecosystems better and all of this. So like, no, that's, that's really good, good kind of feedback for me to think about the way that I approach some of these things too. So we have a really big success story in Florida with um, a species called air potato, uh, Dioscaria, I think, bulbifera. I also murder Latin. So like anyone it. out here who hears my Latin. Oh, no, no, it doesn't matter. I do too. Um, but so air potato, it's this really aggressive vine. It's non-native. It's from Africa. It smothers, uh, you know, forested systems. It's really, really nasty. And, and, and it's really common in uh, home landscapes, too. So we have a lot of homeowners who are dealing with it. How do I get rid of this? Um 
gosh, how long has it been now? Maybe even 10 years. We, we got, we found this adorable little beetle uh, from its native range. It's this little red and black beetle and it makes these cute little chirping sounds. Um, and it's a, it's a specialist, right? So it's, it only uh, feeds and completes its life cycle on this, this species. And, um, and it has really helped, you know, and that's the other message with biological control is typically it's a tool that's brought in when something is already widespread. Um, so we probably should backtrack a little bit after this and go through kind of the phases of invasion. But okay, yeah. this is typically used for something that's already widespread and out of control. And it's another tool for our toolbox to help manage. It's never something that's going to, well, it's very rarely something that's going to eradicate uh, an invasive species, although there are a few small examples where it really did a number. Um, but the air potato beetle was a really high profile, very visible example of something that came in and was able to reduce the potency or the vitality of this vine enough to help both homeowners and land managers bring it under control to the point where it wasn't just you know, running rampant the way it was before. So again, it, even this beetle, as effective as it is, not going to eradicate air potato from Florida, but um, very, you know, one, and the people who released it, the and, and University of Florida Extension did a great job with the outreach of it. They got these beetles into the hands of homeowners uh, who released them in their yards and there's great feedback and just been an overwhelming success. So it's nice to have a story like that. I'm sorry if you, there's a dog oh, toy. No, it's okay. I'm, I'm shocked my um, dog's not doing it too. It's nice to have a success story like that to share with folks and to talk about and as a way to introduce them to biological control and say, you know, here's the, here's the good side. Here's what, when it works, this is, this is what happens. Um, yeah. No. And, and that, again, that is a very important story to tell. Um, so like you said, let's back up a step because I think that is an important part. Uh, and, and talking about the phases of invasion, how does an invasive species get established as an invasive species? All right. So I, I'll talk a little bit about just my experience with Florida and Hawaii. So um, I have worked in the two most uh, imp impacted places in the country for invasive species. Florida is number two, Hawaii is number one. Um, as, and, and a lot of that for Hawaii has to do with it being an island ecosystem. Um, you know, they're kind of the microcosms of environmental problems. Everything's right. amplified. Sure. And so, um, but Florida, for a number of reasons, um, some of it is because for both plants and animals, especially herptofauna, we are a huge port of entry. So a lot of stuff comes in through Florida. Um, and, and, is, and there's a lot of horticulture in Florida because of our environment. And so because our environment is so uh, tropical to subtropical, things also really do well here when they escape that cultivation. They're like, oh, this is nice. I move in. You know, I like this. <laughs> and so um, there are there's a there's a great uh, image of kind of the invasion curve, as we call it. Um, but essentially, it starts with it starts with prevention. So how do we, how can we be on the lookout for things that are potentially coming in and stop them before they even do? So we've got inspectors, right? We've got people, we've got ag stations, we've got dogs sniffing luggage at oh, Miami wow. airport in case you have an apple that might have a fruit fly that we don't want. Wow. Um, and so we have systems like that in place. We need more. 
We need more. We call that biosecurity. Um, Australia and New Zealand are great examples of really strong biosecurity policy. Um, and if you talk to them, they'll say, yeah, because it got so bad, we had to. Right. And so, you know, often people are like that, right? We don't really respond appropriately until it's so bad we have to. Um, but so there's, we have this biosecurity and we need more support there. We need our inspectors and our programs to keep things out, to be more robust than they currently are. Um, but the people who are doing the work, they're unsung heroes. You know, if you can get someone on from like uh, the Customs Border Patrol that do that side of it, the huh? inspections, man, the work those guys are doing and the stuff they see, like occasionally we get to see reports from either Florida or national about the interceptions and it's wild, just huh. it's wild, especially with insects too. Okay. Um, the interceptions are just, just wild. And so there's that, there's prevention. That's the best thing to do. Let's prevent it from coming at all. Right. Yeah. The second step is early detection and rapid response. Okay, something has appeared. Uh, it has invasive potential. We know that from either it's invasive, it's already invasive somewhere else and we're aware or, you know, just run it through a check and like, oh, this could be a big problem. Um, can we contain it and eradicate it before it gets out of control? And so um, let me try to think of an example for that. I can think of the giant African land snail in South Florida. Okay. So that's been... Uh, Detected a few times, anytime it is, eradication protocols go into place and it's eradicated. Um, so that's really important because that is the second most effective thing we can do is detect it early and, you know, get ahead of it and eradicate it before it becomes a problem. Um, the next stage is uh, establishment and and as, like essentially we go into what we call maintenance control mode, which is where a species is already so widespread we no longer have the capacity to just, you know, eradicate it. So we have to come up with what we call an integrated pest management strategy where we find all the tools available to us and figure out the most economic, environmentally, environmentally effective way to then tackle this thing and minimize its impacts on the environment, the economy or, you know, whatever, the, whatever it's impacting. Um, unfortunately, with so many things in Florida and Hawaii, we're already in that country, like, we have so many things that are just so widespread and we're in that mode of, you know, how do we either prevent it from spreading further? Um, so for a lot of things, so in my area in Northeast Florida, we spend a lot of time looking to the North of us at like, okay, what's coming down from the North and also to the South because what's coming up from the South and we're having a lot of issues with climate change with a lot of things that have been typically restricted to South Florida. Now we have to look at them in, in North Florida and say, okay, oh, wow. yeah. you know, so we even even internal to the state, we have regional working groups that consider species that are in Florida, but not in their region as their early detection and rapid response. Right. Because they're like, OK, this is really bad down there, but it's not bad up here yet. So anytime we see it, we need to nip it in the bud. Um, so, yeah, we go through all those and and it gets really expensive. It gets exponentially more expensive to manage invasive species the more widespread they become. Unfortunately, oftentimes we don't even detect something until it is widespread. Right. And this is this is especially true with like insects. So a great example of this kind of thing that we can watch, you can kind of see a time lapse of how it happened was the red bay ambrosia beetle. Okay. So there's this beetle that came in in a port in Georgia in wood packing material from Asia. So it was living in the wood packing material from Asia. It came into this port and it escaped. Um, and it likes uh, laurel, uh, hmm, red bay, 
Oh my gosh, what's the genus? I'm losing all my scientific names. Oh, talking okay. to um, so red bay, bay trees, we have a number of, of species okay, yeah. in Florida, um, are kind of a, a pretty staple tree for southeast forests. It's, it's a predominant tree. This thing, so what this thing does is it has a fungus in its mouth parts that it releases into the tree. And then it's right, it rears its young on this, this fungus. But in our bay trees, it kills the tree. Sure. It essentially chucks off that, um, you know, flow of water and everything from the uh, cambium of the tree. And so um, this thing spread like wildfire. All of a sudden, we had this mass die off of Red Bay. And it was really obvious because you could drive through forests and just see. And it was a pretty quick die. So it was, you know, uh, it's called laurel wilt. Um, but you can, you know, a tree will look healthy one day and just be completely browned out oh, wow. uh, re- relatively quickly. And so, um, but still we're watching this thing spread and we have a avocado industry in Florida and avocados are in the same family as our bay trees. And so they're starting to get hit. Um, and it, this, this Laura Wilt is moving West, it's moving North and it's moving South and it kind of radiating out from its, its introductory point. But that's a great example of something that, I mean, this beetle is the size of a pinhead. Yeah. So detection, you know, we don't know until we start seeing mass die-offs of these trees. By that point, it's too late. <laughs> and we're yeah. playing catch-up. We're like, is there something we can do? Um, and so so things like that are, you know, how how these things can start and just take off like a wildfire. You know, that sounds just like oak wilt in the state of Texas. It is the Mm -hmm. same, pretty much the same disease in an infestation cycle. This little beetle goes and finds wound sites on uh, primarily red oaks and spreads a fungus. And and these fungal mats grow there. And it it kind of smells like bananas, which is weird. Uh, And then attracts more beetles and all of that. And, you know, in Texas, we have... Oh, I don't know what the number is. I know in in my town where I live, we're about 60% oak canopy. Uh, in the city, which is not a super healthy urban forest. If you know, like for folks that know anything about that, we, we need more diversity in that, but there's neighborhoods where like all the oak trees are gone. They've had to cut them all down because mm-hmm. there's nothing you can trench down the middle of the street and try to cut root connections, but there's nothing you can do. Right, right. And uh, yeah. And, and again, prevention is so hard because it's spread up in our area on firewood because mm-hmm. down in the don't uh, move firewood exactly well yeah. because all these landowners and it's not their fault they didn't you know they didn't know like mm-hmm. what we talked about earlier like there's unintended consequences we don't know what we don't know right but, but all these landowners in um central texas where oak wilt kind of started all their oaks died and they were like oh no so they sold the firewood yeah. and it got moved all around the state and it's it's a big big i mean millions hundreds of millions of oaks uh have died so yeah prevention and and we don't think about something as simple as, oh, I was driving through the hill country and there was a, a roadside firewood stand and it's mm-hmm. November. So I picked some up on my way home. You know, we don't think about that. And and again, that's why I say, you know, these these uh, inspection networks are so important and need more support than they currently have, uh, because something like Red Bay and Virgin Beetle, you know, uh, came in on a crate, like in a wood crate. And there's actually a similar thing going on in Hawaii right now um, called Rapid Ohia Death. And Ohia is one of the, it is the first colonizer of a, um, like after a volcanic flow, mm-hmm. like after, you know, it is the the basis of, of most Hawaiian forests. 
and uh, and it's a very similar thing. It's it's a, it's an ambrosia beetle that is spreading this fungus and causing these these die offs of ohia, and that is very you know has the potential to be. I've, I kind of haven't kept up with it as well. It kind of was on, they were kind of just figuring out what was going on um, when I left in 2015. Um, and so, and so they've been, you know, researching it for, for a while now and they have a better handle on what's happening, but um, it was first detected on the big island and uh, I believe now is on a few other islands as well. And so just these, these types of, you know, insects especially can be so, uh, just devastating to forest systems so quickly. And they're so hard to detect until they are really widespread. Right. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's a major issue. And I just actually looked up the, as you were talking, the Ohia tree, it's a beautiful tree. Uh, and it rem- really is. It reminds me of like a bottle brush or mm-hmm. an Albizia, which is mm-hmm. interesting because they fill maybe a similar ecological niche unfortunately in some cases right like that that's pretty interesting um so okay what what do we you know we've we've talked about this some you know how we can use um different biological controls different um you know good ipm strategies to deal with invasive species but ultimately like you know that that's at maybe a governmental level or a, a policy level kind of thing right uh, as individuals, what things can we do, or, or do you have a few things we could do to maybe help control the spread of, of some of these invasives? Yeah, so I'm going to get into that. I do want to, so the Albizia that was introduced to Hawaii is Falcataria okay. genus. So it's not because there are a lot of Albizia genuses as well. So I just wanted to throw that out. Um, so yeah, so there are a lot of things we can do on the invis- on the individual level. Um just getting educated about the invasive species in your area. So reaching out to your local extension or, you know, just, uh, and and this goes hand in hand with getting educated about the, the native uh, ecosystems in your area. So here in Florida, it can be really difficult because like I said, I'm a, I'm a Florida girl. Like I grew up in the woods and the, you know, swamp and the ocean and, so like things like alligators and snakes and all those big, scary things, um, those, those are my friends, you know right. what I mean? And so, but we get so many people who move in and are terrified of these things and just want them not anywhere around them. And it's mm. like, on the one hand, you want to be like, welcome to Florida. It's beautiful here. Learn about how beautiful it is. But on the other hand, sometimes I'm a little bit like, you know, don't move here if you hate everything about the natural <laughs> ecosystem. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> so, you know, but so you kind of have to know what's supposed to be there to know what's not supposed to be there. Right. right? Um, so learning about beyond just what is what the typical ornamental plants are in your neighborhoods. You know, what are your forests look like? What are your you know, what are your uh, wet areas look like? So just getting educated about what's in your area. Um, if you see anything that looks out of place, report it to somebody. So in Florida, we have FWC. We have some pretty simple ways to report invasive species. The uh, There is an EDMAPS, so E-D-D-M-A-P-S, edmaps.com. That is a national website. Hmm. I'm not sure how. We use it heavily in Florida, um, so I'm not sure how much, how well monitored it is in other states. Um, but, you know, Again, extension is a great way to start. Uh, if you have a local extension in your in your county, um, 
but whoever your local environmental agency is, uh, we have two in Florida. We have DEP and FWC. FWC, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, typically deals with the invasive species. But just tell somebody in that realm, like, hey, here's this thing. We have a lot of great examples where it was, you know, just like a homeowner or a teacher or somebody who was like, this looks weird. And then we're like, oh, yeah, that is. Let's get on that. You know, oh, wow. okay. um, so people you got everyone is our first. Everyone is our eyes and ears. Everyone is our first line of defense. Um being aware of how not to spread them. So like you said, firewood is a big one. You know, use local firewood. That's really important, especially nowadays. We've got more and more invaders. Excuse me, things like emerald ash borer, uh, Asian longhorn beetle, spotted lanternfly. Those are all things that are, I think, still primarily Northeast issues. But uh, emerald... Asian longhorn beetle is now in South Carolina, so it's getting closer to us. So firewood is a big way, you know, to move those things. Um, but even when you're just out recreating, uh, if you're a boater, um, a lot of aquatic invasives can hitchhike really easy. A lot of our aquatic invader, invaders are actually uh, reproduced vegetatively. Hmm. And so even if you just take a little bit of a plant, a little bit of root material, a little bit of something and go to the next water body that maybe doesn't have that yet. And now it does. Um, when you're hiking, you know, clean your boots, a lot of, uh, seeds, even, you know, even native species, it's really best to just not be moving things around to new places. So, you know, cleaning your boots, uh, cleaning your car, if you visit a different area, um, and then, you know, taking control of your own landscape. So a lot of the work we do has to do with helping to, to better connect and understand how natural resource management or natural resource managers are dealing with invasive species and then connecting them with that private landowner just across the fence that, you know, may be a constant source of reintroduction of an invasive species. So anytime a private landowner can tackle them in their own property is, is really key. Um, and then I'm a huge proponent of native plant landscaping. Yeah. So one of the ways to make our all of our systems more robust to everything from climate change to habitat loss to invasive species is to provide more native habitat. So native landscaping, uh, you know, using native plants in your own landscape supports your native pollinators, uh, you know, makes, makes the whole system more resilient. So I'm a huge, I'm a big plant nerd, just like native (laughs) plant nerd. I spend a lot of my time out in the forest, just looking for what's blooming and uh, just really majorly geeking out with my sister-in-law Um, and so, so those, yeah, those are some of the biggest things I think. Um, and then just be an advocate, you know, just, again, it's like I said, those, those folks who are doing inspections for species. And, um, I think just learning about what's happening and being an advocate for those systems and those people is huge. For sure. Well, no, and those are good, like really practical things that anybody can do. And, and I, I'm with you on the, the, the native and I'll, I'll say native and I, I, I kind of promote around here native and well adapted landscapes because if we go with mm-hmm. native landscapes here, we got to go cut down most of our trees and I don't want to do that. But, but, but yeah, no, I think that that is important though. Like if there's a specific plant you want, there's, you know, it, it, so because a lot of people move, you know, and they're like, oh, I grew up here. I want a mm-hmm. whatever, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You can probably find a native that fills that same niche in the landscape that, mm-hmm. that, that meets your, you know, needs without mm-hmm. destroying the ecosystem, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, that's that's such an important message. 
Um, well, we'll start. Wow, we, I just looked at the time. We've been, this has been so fascinating. I just I don't. I know I could do that. I could talk about this all day long if you can't tell. So I'm try, in my mind, I'm trying to do. Okay, did I hit the key points? What's super important? What I have to say. Um, but yeah, I could just get lost in the sauce on this. So. Well, we may have to have you back on sometime then, and, and follow up. Maybe maybe pick a specific you know, species at some point and talk yeah. more in depth about it. Cause I think that yeah, really that's cool. helpful for context, right? I think that's really mm-hmm. helpful for figuring out, okay, if I can apply it to this one thing, then we can apply those principles elsewhere. Um, but are there, are there any last points you want to make before we, we kind of wrap up? I think, um, you know, I think for me, I want to talk just a little bit about just the people who do invasive species work um, because you know, it's really, it can be really difficult. And like you said, you know, we can be really, it's really easy. And I think in any environmental field to get really doom and gloom really quickly. Um, But I see a lot of, hmm, I want to frame this in like a a good positive way, but I see a lot of uh, negativity towards when people talk about invasive species, you know, one of the biggest things, one of the easiest rebuttals is like, oh, people are the worst invasive species. (laughs) Like, I promise you, anyone who's ever worked on invasive species has heard that. And we know, like, we know. Yeah. yeah. And and most of us who are doing invasive species work, um, you know, I love, I work in Florida, so I deal with plants a lot. I kind of grew, I came up on plants, so I know the most about plants. But, you know, of course, we also have here in Florida, we have the highest diversity of established non-native herptofauna of anywhere in the world. Wow. So you can go to South Florida and basically go on a tour of the world's herptofauna. Now, <laughs> not all of those are invasive. You know, some of them are established in these little pockets and they're not necessarily doing any harm. But right. then some of them, like, you know, the famous python of the Florida Everglades and black and white Argentine tegus, and they are doing a lot of damage. And so, but these are things that I think are so cool. I mean, I love snakes. I love reptiles. I love frogs. We've got a number of, of invasive frogs that we have to deal with. And, you know, I may have to go out and control an invasive frog, but that's not easy for me because I I still love this animal and in its native habitat, like, I'm so stoked that it exists and I want to support it there, but I can't ignore that here it, it, uh, it very much, you know, disturbs and, and is, uh, you know, detrimental to the native, the native species. Yeah. And so just that point that invasive species are actually, you know, kind of in this triumvirate with climate change and habitat loss as the top three causes of extinctions globally. So, you know, this really is a major issue and, I would say, you know, if there's anything I could leave with people, it's like before you go out and just like say, oh, all government agency work is bad. So you're a government agency worker. It must you must be doing something bad or or I'm suspicious. Get to know the people doing the work in your area. We have organizations in Florida called the Cooperative Invasive Species Management Areas. um, And those are regional networks of the boots on the ground folks doing the work. Um, And the primary function is for them to communicate and understand the issues in their region. But those are open to private landowners. You know, I think it's so easy to cast, and especially in this age of kind of science backlash to Mm -hmm. a degree, you know, for the most part, like the scientists and the resource managers, they want to talk to you. They want you to be engaged in the work they're doing. They want you to understand why they're doing it. And and it's it's all really passionate individuals who want to do something good. And so I think I think my message is that 
you know, this is all people driven work uh, about from people who really care and who are really passionate. And so if you really want to understand what's going on, you know, reach out and talk to us and and let's work on it together and not just be like constantly having this tension between, you know, the issues. That's awesome. That makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah, oh a hundred percent. You know, I, I work. I work for Extension. I, I definitely know they don't. You know, it's the pe- people. A lot of times think it's the I'm from the government. I'm here to help kind of thing. And 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 yeah. but the, we're actually are. We're actually trying to help. We want to help. Um, and, and I guess I'm sorry. And again, I could go on all day. So like, cut out all my. No, rambling. no, no. You're good. Um, you know, I, I guess I should caveat that with like there totally is a healthy level of skepticism and there totally is, you know, reasons to question and, and, and push back sometimes like that, that dialogue is important too. Um, But I guess it just, for me, this comes from a place of seeing reactions of, you know, people who just forget that there's a human being behind, you know, what they're lashing out against and that maybe there's better ways to come together and work on the issues if we can find some common ground and, and, and work together. Like, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been called a Russian bot for trying to tell people that sometimes herbicides have a place in management. Yeah. You know, like it, like just bringing that up nowadays and, and we're constantly trying to use less and to be better. But at the end of the day, sometimes that's what we, that's the tool we have and we can, you know, we try to use it in the most responsible way. But, uh, you know, so often when I would try to have that conversation in some spaces, it's like, oh, you're just Monsanto owns you. And I'm oh like, no, goodness. I'm a human being who like is yeah. just trying to, you know, to work on this. And I, w- I want us to work together and not be, you know, butting heads about this. Oh, um, I, gosh, I'm, I'm right there with you. I've had that same experience. Like I've unironically <laughs> been called a shill. And I was like, I, th- really, Same. really? I mean, Same. seriously, yeah, no, I no, and that's and that's great advice. Is maybe, uh, and and you know, normally I ask for a piece of advice, but actually, that's the best you already gave it. I mean, that's great advice. Of it, it is, it is easy to lash out, but maybe stop and and swallow your first reaction sometimes, and and think about why information is being presented in the way that it is. Can I tell one last quick little yeah, story? Absolutely. So one of the coolest things that I or that I've gotten to do is um, when I was in Hawaii and I was working on little fire ant issues. So little fire ant is an invasive ant, uh, Wasmania aeropunctata. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it's awful throughout the Pacific. I mean, it drives people off of farmlands yeah. because they, they they're just awful. Um, and so. We in my when I was there in the years that I was there, new pop it had only been known on Big Island, but new populations were starting to pop up on Maui and Oahu. And in those days, we thought maybe these were incipient and maybe we could get a handle on them before it became as widespread as it was on Big Island. And so there was because it was such a problem on Big Island, there was a researcher there, Cass Vanderwood, who was like the expert on how to kind of you know deal like on their biology and how to deal with them in the, in the Pacific Islands. And so on Maui, um, you know, it's new there. They're trying to educate the public and these things are popping up on private lands and they want to help the private landowner control them. And so um, but understandably, there's a lot of people who don't want you coming on their property and just sprinkling out some kind of you know, <laughs> pesticide. Sure. Yeah. But what what they did. And so this was the Maui Invasive Species Committee in partnership with the Hawaii Ant Lab led by uh, Dr. Cass Vanderwoot. They went and just sat down with these homeowners 
And Cass would just talk to them and like every question they had, just sit there and talk until they felt comfortable or at least better understood. And it didn't always result in an agreement, but for the most part, you know, it it was just a really cool thing to get to be a part of, to sit with these homeowners and listen to the expert, just take as much time as they needed to hear why this was important you know, what the treatments they were doing were, everything we knew about how those treatments could potentially impact their environment. Um, You know, and I think those types of things are time consuming and they're, you know, they're in depth, but, but also impactful. And it was really cool thing to be a part of just to see these, you know, people come together to talk about the issue and, and dispel that, you know, big, I'm from the government, I'm here to help down to the level of, I'm just a person who's dedicated my life to trying to figure out how to reduce the impact of these ants on these Pacific islands. And let me tell you everything I know to make you feel better about us controlling them. Yeah, that's so, super cool. Right. That's super cool. And and that's a great lesson for people on both sides of that situation. Like mm-hmm. if we want to get the message across, we have to be willing to spend the time and yeah. the, the, the personal like one-on-one face-to-face and to deal with the skepticism and to like we have to have a thick skin in the sciences sometimes because of these things but like if we really believe in the message that we're putting out there we have to be willing to do the work totally yeah, yeah i think that's real important very cool Gosh, I, I, I still like i'm gonna have to have you back on because i think i still have so many questions for you uh but, but yeah, I, w- I would like to have you on again and talk about maybe a couple of species in specific and just kind of. Yeah, dive I would in love that. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even really get into like why invasive species are bad in the sense of like, you know, what they can do to natural systems. So it would be great to go over to really get like into the nitty gritty on a few and be and, and share how, how impactful they are. So, yeah, let's do that for sure. We'll yeah. do, I'm, we're, yeah, we're due for another deep dive episode. So, we'll do that sometime soon. Totally. Um, well, Emily, where, I, I mean, again, thanks so much for coming on. I, it was fascinating. Uh, I, this stuff, this stuff gets my brain going. I'm really excited <laughs> and I get, I nerd out about this stuff too, but um, where can people find you? What are some uh, places you'd like to point folks? Yeah, totally. So uh, please follow my organization. We're on um, the Florida Invasive Species Partnership is on Facebook. You can find us as the Florida Invasive Species Partnership. We're on Twitter as protect underscore Florida and Instagram protect underscore Florida. Um, so yeah, please, please follow those. Um, I kind of, my Instagram is probably my personal most active like catalog of my Florida adventures. So if you're interested in native uh, plants and animals and the occasional dog and kid post, uh, <laughs> but it is mostly uh, plants and animals. Um, I am Emily Bell photo on Instagram. Uh, and I'm on Twitter. Unbelievable. I am new to it. I'm not like a psychomer like you guys are. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to meet you. And it's really cool to see the work. And, and it has been cool to meet new people uh, through that. So I'm new to it, but uh, trying to trying to get better at, at tweeting and stuff. Well, and I can highly recommend uh, uh, Emily's Instagram. And I believe you and your husband are both photographers. Like I, you're, you take beautiful photos. Thank you. Yeah. So he does it as a living. He's a, uh, a portrait photographer. He does okay. people, but he's, he's really into nature too. Um, 
So yeah, Emily Belfoto, he is, um, actually, let me give his wildlife uh, yeah. page because it's really cool. Um, he just changed it. So Jensen Bell underscore this wildlife is his, and he really does a lot of birds. He's really into birds, but he, he gets some other stuff too. So awesome. uh, yeah, we like, I'm just a hobbyist. I just really, really for me, photography is a way to share what I think is really beautiful about my home and, and the places that I get to travel. So um, that's kind of my interest in it, but he does it for a living. So he's got to, you know make the oh yeah make the money on the oh yeah no, and I'll, and I'll, <laughs> oh for sure and I'll, I'll share links to all that in the show notes too but uh emily thanks again that was great yeah, i really enjoyed that you. i'm super honored to be among the you know pantheon of incredible guests you've had so thanks for having me well, for sure and uh thank y'all for listening as always y'all are the best and uh i don't actually know what today is yet you'll have found out at this point what today is so uh uh y'all keep listening keep being cool keep being nice to each other and we'll talk to you next time. Y'all be conscious of the way you talk to people and treat people, uh, whether you are a, an educator or someone being educated. Um, we have to find common ground. Make sure you're planting native and well-adapted plants and uh, maybe keep your pet kudzu at home. Y'all, thanks for listening. It is wonderful, as always, to have you be a part of this. I love you folks so much. We just recently hit 50,000 downloads. 50,000. Y'all, that's wild. It's wild. When I started this, I didn't think that would ever be able to happen. And it's all because of you cool people. Thanks so much to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for all the support and for even letting this thing happen. I could not do it without the support of my wonderful department. Um, get ready next week. We've got a solo episode about plants and trees and summer and all kinds of other things. I put a bunch of things on there because I don't actually know what it's going to be about yet, but it's going to be great. And uh, I've got some great interviews coming up for you this fall, and I am really excited just to see where this goes over the next few months. I love you folks. Keep being good to each other. Keep being kind and keep being really cool plant people. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.